Hello, and you are listening to the Celebrity Speakers Podcast, produced by the National Arts Centre English Theatre and coming to you from the fourth stage of Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. I'm Sean Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the second podcast of the 2008-2009 Celebrity Speaker Series with host Lori Brown. In this season series, Lori, nationally respected arts journalist and host of CBC Radio's The Signal, speaks with some of the foremost artists in the country. In this interview, Lori Brown speaks with Shaw Festival Artistic Director Jackie Maxwell. Lori and Jackie discuss Jackie's beginnings in Canadian theatre here at the NAC and a look into running the Shaw Festival. For more information about the NAC English Theatre, please visit www.nac-cna.ca. And now, here are Lori Brown and Jackie Maxwell. You're in a different house here tonight, I am. but this is not a strange place for you. When was the first time you ever came to the National Arts Centre? Uh, I came here, uh, I ha- arrived in Canada uh, in 1978 at, uh, in August, and uh, by, I think it was sort of later, sort of around 1979, I was in fact working here at the NAC. So in fact, I got my first professional theater job in Canada here at the NAC. And what were you doing? Um, I was assistant to the artistic director. The artistic director in those days, I'm sure people here remember, was a a man called John Wood. And he had a company of actors. And uh, we did an astonishing amount of theater in, uh, it seemed really quite a short time. And I managed to sort of, uh, I I'd basically come here for love. I had followed a Canadian actor called Ben Campbell, Benedict Campbell. Uh, we had met in England and I'd kind of followed him here as one does in one's early years. <laughs> and, um, and here we landed and, uh, it was astonishing. I'd never you know, I didn't know Canada. Uh, I didn't really know anything about it, except as soon as I got here, I kind of thought, oh, there's something happening. It was an interesting time. The company was doing wonderful stuff. And so I was working in a bookstore uh, while Ben was in the company. And then I think I just probably talked John Wood's ear off enough to, to the point where he thought, oh, just give her a job. Just let her do something for God's sake, you know. And I did. And it was a wonderful, I was here for uh, four years. But growing up in Belfast, you were an actor. Yeah, I was a, I was a child actor, if you like. Yeah, I, I um, my mother taught theater and uh, was very uh, uh, wrapped up in community theater, very active and people making props in our living rooms, you know, ever since I could remember. And um, I was in a youth theater. Uh, it, was, it was a great youth theater run um, by a, a, a woman called Mary O'Malley, who was an Irish nationalist, who thought that the only plays worth doing were the plays of Yeats, which <laughs> Which is not that I disagree with that necessarily, except when you're 11, 
seven, you know, <laughs> and my poor mother would go, you know, well, what are you guys doing this year? And we go, I go at the Hawkswell, you know, and these nine year old, 11 year olds would be doing all of these Yates plays. And, but anyway, it, uh, it gave me the bug. And, uh, yeah. So what I proceeded to do was kind of, I was, I was the regular kid actor for any shows in the local professional theater through high school. If they needed a kid, I was it. So how did you envision your life going at that point when you were, I mean, you had your equity card when you were mm-hmm. 14 or something. What did you see as your future? Oh, Juliet at the Royal Shakespeare Company. <laughs> I mean, totally. There was no doubt as far as I was concerned. I mean, that was just, wasn't that obvious? I mean, that's what you did. You got into the theater and you acted and, you know, you became famous and did great parts. Um and I, I, it was really, I, I decided I, it was a big sort of family fight. I wanted to go to theater school. My mother said I had to go to university. And in the end, we kind of compromised. And I'm very glad I did a theater degree at Manchester University. And it was really there that I started to realize how much, how much else the theater was than simply performing. Not that I, I have great respect for performers, for sure. And, uh, but I started to, that's where I started to, I read a huge amount of plays. I started to get involved in political theater. Um, I started um, realizing that there was all sorts of different ways of approaching theater. And so when I eventually met this actor, this guy who was so completely obsessively an actor, and I kept thinking, oh, I don't know, I think... I think I like doing other things in the theater too. And it was actually here at the NAC where I got to, as the assistant, I got to assist all these extraordinary directors. Uh, Jean Gascon was here, just sort of, it was one of the the last places that he worked, in fact. John Hirsch, uh, all sorts of directors, male notably, Mm -hmm. um, were coming through and I got to be their assistant. Um, and that, to me, I started watching going, okay, this is, this is an interesting job. Well, you what's know? the difference between the director's brain and an actor's brain? Um, well, I think, I think an actor's brain has to and should be very mono-focused. I think as an actor, it doesn't mean that you don't see the whole play. You do. And I think most good actors are very smart. But um, you have to keep thinking of your, 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 your the, you know, you're the representative of your part. You have to see your place in the play um, as the priority. Whereas as, as a director, of course, you're not. You have to see the whole picture. And I realize if, because I have a much more kind, I have quite a magpie kind of brain. Like I can kind of keep a lot of things going at once. And I like the idea of, of, of being of seeing a world like when you direct you have to see the big picture and then you have to kind of zero in and see a detail and then be able to kind of pull out again and that somehow made more sense in terms of how I think or as my children say I'm just bossy I mean it could be either so you know (laughs) but no I it sort of made more sense to me ultimately to direct did it was it disappointing for you to leave acting behind um no, it really wasn't, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I think I, I had a, a very um, salutary period of unemployment in, in England. Um, after I graduated from university, I spent about nine months, well, basically in bed. Um, I would get The Guardian delivered every morning and make a big pot of tea and read The Guardian and then read my rejection letters. And I did that really for quite a while. 
realizing that the the road to the Juliet was not going to be quite as immediate as I thought. <laughs> so somehow, you know, the notion, I, I, I think I'd, I'd realized that I was going to have to sort of look around and, and see, is this really what I wanted to do? I mean, I knew that it would be hard, but, you know, I didn't know it'd be that hard. And I think when I came to Canada... And because I just got interested in talking to to the people at the NAC and talking to John, I I just thought, I'm not going to push the acting thing. I'm just going to see what happens. And in a sense, as I think often happens in the theater, you know, things happen. It doesn't mean that you don't have to work very hard because you do. But I think sometimes, you know, things drop in your lap and then you have to make the most of them or you have to make yourself open to things happening. And I think that's really, it was that simple in a funny way. These directors that were coming through the National Arts Center at that time, um, you learned a lot from them, but were they mentoring to you? Like, did they take you under their wing in, in some way? Or or what did they think well, about having this young I think some of female them, yeah. director? I think I was a bit of an, I think I was a bit of an oddity, to be honest. Um, some of them were... The very, I mean, John Hirsch, for example, was an extraordinary man, but he wasn't really so much as a mentor as just someone, he would turn to me and say, okay, you're going to take all of my notes for me, yes? You will take all my notes. And I said, oh, okay. So he would just be sitting watching a show and he would just go, and he would be looking over here and he'd go, I hate that hat over there. And so I'm watching going, how does he even see that hat? I don't under, you know, so I would kind of take the notes and he would say terrible things like, oh, she is shit in that scene. Tell her. <laughs> so, so then I would have to go to the leading actress and go, you know, Mr. Hirsch feels that things are working right now, but it's just not quite happening. The way. So, you know, I, I actually kind of learned a lot by myself. <laughs> I kind of learned kind of on on the uh, as it happened and it wasn't that he wasn't very friendly and helpful but he wasn't so much interest he just he actually made assumptions and i found that i found that often in the theater sometimes you get into situations where people go well if you're here you obviously must know what you're doing and then so you kind of go okay well i guess i'll just blunder my way through and hopefully that will happen and somehow i just went okay i'll just i'll just you know pick up what i can along the way and in fact, learned a lot in that kind of did rather you have, terrifying way. <laughs> did you have a sense early on um, about something that you wanted to do with your directing? Well, I didn't at first, I have to say. I mean, you know, you just I thought, okay, could I even do it? Um, John Wood was very good that way. He was actually the one who said to me, eventually, you have to do this. You, you've become a very good assistant. As I think, you know, many of you have ever been an assistant, you can become very good at it. And then you can stay an assistant. He wouldn't let that happen. And he did give me stuff to direct. But the turning point really for me was when um, Sharon Pollock um, a wonderful Canadian playwright, we were doing Blood Relations. And um, it was only the second production of this play. And she wanted to come and do some rewriting. So she came and she, she was a bit, you know, she's a, a like kind of terrifying but brilliant personality. She, and, uh, and she came to me one day and she said, so what happens to the new plays here? Like what happens to plays that playwrights? And I said, Oh, I don't, I think they go in that cupboard and literally kind of, you know, <laughs> opened the cupboard, the plays fall out. It was really embarrassing. She said, well, this is appalling. You've got to start a workshop program. And I said, well, I, I've never done that. And she said, well, I'll tell you, it's easy. It's not, you know, it's not hard to set up a workshop program. You know, you can do it. I'll show you. 
And she literally bullied me kind of into setting up this workshop program. So I thought, okay, so. And we set up this workshop program, which I always thought was interesting. It was all the writers were young, cute guys from the West, including Paul Gross, actually, was one. It's where I first met Paul Gross. Um, anyway, and these, and, but it was actually through that that, I started to watch her working with these writers. And in fact, even though she was scary and ballsy and whatever, with writers, she was extraordinarily patient. She was really good humored. She was really constructive. And I started to think, now this is really interesting because there really is no, it's a big kick to think, and I've done it now, you know, many, many times where you get a piece and it, it's really just, it's either a bunch of scruffy paper or it's a bunch of ideas or it's un, it's unformed and unfinished series, a first draft. And then eventually you are a part of making that turn into a world that's never existed before. And when you do that and when you create that world and the actors create these characters that have never existed before and you're standing there on an opening night going, now that's something. That those people have never ever been before, and now they are, and we made it happen. And that really turned me on. That I thought, oh, okay, I think I could do this. I think I should do this. When I think about the arc of theater uh, and the history of it, this seems like a, a sort of a, a newer development, like the the age of collaboration. Hmm. Hmm. Well, it was also the age, I think, of of Canadian voices. I mean, you know, I, I shortly after this went to Toronto and again, in a kind of, you know, series of circumstances and we won't go into sort of the whole biography, but I ended up working at the factory theater in Toronto, which of course was, it was there to produce and develop new Canadian work. And it was amazing because it, it, there was already a generation had started. There was ex an extraordinary amount of work happening in Toronto in those days with the building of Tarragon Theatre and, and Passamaraya and so on. And it was very exciting. I mean, by the time I got to Factory, there was this groundswell and people want, because people wanted the Canadian voice to be heard. And I mean, I literally, you know, I went up to Sioux Lookout um, and met this uh, this young kind of native theater group led by this young man, Thompson Highway, and his brother, Rene. And um, they, you know, still were thinking maybe they should come to Toronto. And I remember Thompson saying, you know, I want to write this play about the women on my reservation and blah, blah, blah. Well, of course, that ended up being the Res Sisters. You know, there was a, there was a famous bar on Queen Street that... You know, there would be the people from Video Cab. Uh, Michael Hollings were saying, I want to write a history of Canada in a, in a certain way. And it became the village of the small huts. And George Walker was our, you know, our playwright in residence. And he was writing Criminals in Love and starting to write all those, you know, urban uh, Toronto plays. So it was a very exciting time to be a part to be a part of that, to be feeling that you were actually all these voices were coming out and people were demand the crazy people, the Codco gang from Newfoundland would come in. That was really bad for your health every time they came in. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it was really, it, there was a lot of, it was fun. It was really fun. And you really felt that these, these pieces were coming out and people wanted to hear them. The audiences were coming to see them. That sort of collaborative um, sort of cauldron of of talent was that going on anywhere else in the world at that time 
Oh, I, I think it in was. In that same and, way, in that sort of collaborative thing? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, when I left England, um, one of the things that I'd found most inspiring was um, watching there was a whole kind of um, circuit of theatre that had started up outside London that was really going around the north of England and down. Um, it was where Carol Churchill started writing with her group Monstrous Regiment, Joint Stock, where people like David Hare were getting their start. Um, all sorts of um, b- political writers, political with a big P and a little P, were, were using this circuit and working, some of them working in a, in a very collective way, some of them working as writers with groups of people. So I think this this notion that, that, that plays could be made in lots of different ways was was happening um, in, in all sorts of places. But I think for Canada at that time, from what I could sense, it was very new. And there was still some money around. God knows that's always a little trickier now to get a hold of. Or maybe we just didn't I don't know. There just always seemed to be enough money to put on a show and have a beer, but maybe that's all we kind of needed at that <laughs> point. But but there was the sense that that um, that that stuff could happen, and that people could get together. And we were, you know, th- th- there was a. I, I, you're right. It was a it was a cauldron at that point for sure. That's where I first met Peter. Hinton. How did you first meet Peter? Well, I'm trying to remember exactly when we first met, but we would we would kind of um, Peter would come in and always do some like like kind of extraordinary new. I, I, I was I'd started up a, a thing at the factory of um, uh, translating. Uh, Quebec pieces, and I'd always been surprised. I I majored in languages at high school, and I thought. I thought, isn't it wonderful I'm going to go to a country where everybody's spent French and English all the time? Which, of course, you know. And, and then I would come here and people would say, you know, at the, the stage, voulez-vous un hot dog? You know, and I'm going, oh, okay, maybe this isn't quite what I thought. But um, but I went to see a lot of French theater in, in Montreal and I loved it. You know, the works of Michel-Marc Bouchard and Michel Garneau and, and on and on. And so I sort of found out there was a grant that you could get and we started doing translation workshops at the factory because at that point, the only person really whose work was getting translated was Tremblay. And so I thought, well, there's all these other fantastic playwrights. Um, and so we started, we did uh, the first, uh, the, we, the translation of Lilies by Michel-Marc Bouchard and all sorts of pieces. And and I think it was the coronation voyage, if I'm right, Peter can yell out, and, that Peter came in for me and directed a workshop. Is that right? Yeah. And that's where I, and then Peter would come in and do the most, and Peter's workshops were always fantastically theatrical. Normally people would just go, oh, it's just, you know, chairs. And But Peter's workshops would always be much more theatrical than everybody else's. And, um, and that's where I, you know, we first all, our love of all of these words. I think that's, I think a lot of us felt very in tune because these, we love that people, there were just words were tumbling. That's what it felt like to me. It was like a big waterfall of great words, and we were there to kind of harness them and try to put them on the stage. It was fun. Working in this group of people, did did that make things uh, easier or seem more doable for you as a female director at that time in Canada? Probably. I mean, it was funny. I had a little bit of a dual career in that um, as I was doing all of that, because, of course, you know, when you're young, you go, oh, well, I'm sure I can do lots more. Um, I was also, because I'd sort of studied classically, I mean, I had a quite a background in classical theater. Um, I tried to 
freelance, still do freelance directing on plays, as I said at that point, that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. So I would go off and do, you know, uh, an Irish, you know, I, I did Brian Friel, or uh, I did a Shakespeare, or I did, uh, you know, I would try to do other pieces. Um, and it was there that I noticed much more that I was a female director. When I was in the thick of it all in Toronto, it didn't really seem to be, but there were definitely times when I was, it, you know, it's interesting. I, for a long time, I, w- I was called, you know, in the papers would be Jackie Maxwell, young female director. And then after a while, it was just Jackie Maxwell, female director. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess, I guess now I kind of get director. I guess they've all, you know, all bored with whatever gender I am now. But, um, <laughs> but it was interesting. There was times when I, I had to kind of I, I, I shared my level of patronization in places for sure. But, you know, I mean, uh, I found that for the most part, I would, you know, I just kind of kept doing what I was doing. And and ultimately, it did. the, the theater's funny that way because it isn't that there aren't glass ceilings. I think that there probably are. Um, but I think because it's so hierarchical anyway, you know, <laughs> that it's uh, sometimes the kind of gender issue is not, always the, the biggest one I think not in, not in when you're really down in, in those kind of trenches I think when you get to the bigger theaters it can do and I mean you know there was quite a kerfuffle when I took over the Shaw I don't know if it was so much gender or the fact that I was from guerrilla theater as opposed to classical theater I don't know well if gender you say isn't the major glass ceiling what's the major glass ceiling um Oh, I think gender can be. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, th- I think it's in different areas of theater. I mean, I think the interesting thing is a lot of us in, in Canadian theater, I think, have come up, or there was a whole group of us that kind of came up through the small theaters and the medium-sized theaters and kind of, so by the time you've done that, you're just kind of there and uh, you you try to make the decision, are you going to actually go into some of these bigger institutions or not? Um I think getting into the bigger institutions is where it gets a little trickier. I think it's because those bigger institutions are run by boards often, not not so much now, but often those boards were very, very male-dominated. So um, the notion of women running large institutions and assuming that amount of power, that's where I think there was a, a glass ceiling for mm. a while. Well, you were the first woman to run one of the major festivals mm-hmm. in Canada. Did, was there trepidation in taking that job or were you just like, yes, here I go? Well, you know, it was, I have to say it was a funny, I had run factory for 12 years and I had give, I'd stopped because I, I was tired. You know, I was burned out. <laughs> um, I'd also had, you know, two children along the way. So I was running a theater. I had two little kids and, you know, it was just time to stop as uh, much as I had loved it. So I was actually quite happily freelancing and doing, you know, different stuff and directing, you know, I went to Charlottetown and ended up sort of by mistake directing huge musicals, which I'd never done before. Um, I directed an opera, which was terrifying, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I did stuff again to make myself scared again, which I think was necessary. And I was literally, I'd been asked a couple of times to go to the Shaw. I'd always admired the Shaw and what it did, but I could never go on, but I, could do this gig. I was doing William Ng's Picnic, which is a wonderful, you know, 1950s Americana, sexy, slushy kind of wonderful piece. 
And I was there. I had a fantastic cast. I had the dream cast that I could have wanted. I, the production, you know, I mean, just if you go to the shops at the Shaw, I mean, the, the costumes, the, the sets, it's so beautifully done. So I was just kind of in heaven. I was just having a fantastic time doing this gig at the Shaw. And I got a call from Colleen Blake, who's the executive director. And she said, you know, you are going to apply, aren't you? You know, Christopher Newton's resigning and you are going to apply. And I went, oh, pfft. <laughs> oh, I don't think so. And then I thought about it and I went, well, if I was ever going to run a theater again, I mean, this is a pretty great theater to, to run. And I think because, as, as Peter mentioned, just thankfully, in fact, Christopher Newton, just before he left, he was the one who opened the mandate, so to speak. Sounds a bit kind of, you know. Alibaba, but um, he does. He had decided that the mandate should be expend, 